I'm Lana Ulrich, in-house counsel at the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. This week's episode was recorded prior to the start of Judge Kavanaugh's confirmation hearings and is the first in a two-part series that will cover the confirmation process. In this episode, we explore the history of Supreme Court confirmation hearings, from how the framers envisioned the process to work, notable stories throughout history, to how it works today. Next week, we will recap everything we have learned from the Kavanaugh hearings with special guests Nina Totenberg, legal affairs correspondent for NPR, and Neil Katyal, partner at Hogan Lovell's law professor and former acting solicitor general. Join us back here next Thursday, but until then, please enjoy a look back at confirmation hearings past. I'm Jeffrey Rosen, president and CEO of the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. The National Constitution Center is a nonpartisan, nonprofit institution chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution among the American people. As the country prepares for the confirmation hearings of Judge Brett Kavanaugh, we're here today on We the People to discuss the history of Supreme Court confirmation hearings and their constitutional implications. What does the Constitution say about the confirmation process? What did the framers think? What can history tell us? And what can we learn from studying text and history about our current situation. Joining us to tackle these crucial questions are two of America's leading experts on the Supreme Court confirmation process. Lori Winghand is J. Alden Hoesch Professor of Law at the University of Georgia, where she teaches constitutional and election law. She's co-author of the book Supreme Court Confirmation Hearings and Constitutional Change with Paul Collins. And Adam White is research fellow at the Hoover Institution and director of the Center for the Study of the Administrative State at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School. He's the author of many articles about the Supreme Court, including one I recommend to We the People listeners, like Professor Ringan's book, Toward the Framers' Understanding of Advice and Consent and Historical and Textual Inquiry. Laurie, Adam, thank you so much for joining. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Adam, let's begin with the title of your article. What was the framers' understanding of advice and consent, and what can the historical and textual inquiry teach us? Well, I'm glad you read the title because I tried to be as careful and and restrained in the title when I wrote this. I wrote this piece a long time ago when I was still a law student. Um, The question was, what were the framers getting at? What were they intending or what did they have in mind when they came up with the idea for the appointment, the process for appointing judges. Namely, the president nominates, he gets the advice and consent of the Senate, and then he makes his appointment. Uh, If you look back at the history of the Constitutional Convention in 1787, uh, this process for appointment, not just for judges, but for all officers, all heads of departments as well, um, this was sort of a lagging indicator for the tenor of the convention as a whole. The process for making appointments was often debated and redebated and reconsidered in the aftermath of the bigger structural questions about the Constitution itself, the nature of our legislature, one house or two, how would representation be settled in, in, in the houses of Congress, what were the powers of the presidency, and so on. You'd see the convention vote and then reconsider and vote again on different approaches to appointments based on what they had decided or what they were debating on the structural constitution as a whole. So, for example, early in the convention, when what we call the Virginia Plan was introduced by Edmund Randolph, 
there was going to be a single national legislature with popular appointment. And they debated on whether to just have the national legislature as a whole uh, choose not just the national executive, but also judges and, and other officers. And they debated that. And then they debated, or the, sorry, they voted overwhelmingly with minimal debate to just give the appointment power to the executive who was going to be chosen by, by the legislature. And they came back and reconsidered that. They thought about appointment by the Senate as the Senate, the modern set, the, the Senate ended up taking shape as a higher house of Congress, not necessarily direct, uh, directly elected by the people. They considered just vesting the appointment power in there. Um, then finally, in July of 1787, about halfway through the convention, uh, Nathaniel Gorham from the state of Massachusetts said, well, here's a suggestion. Why don't we, uh, why don't we do appointment the way it's done in Massachusetts, namely advice and consent, where the executive would appoint after making a nomination and securing the advice and consent of the Senate. Now, in Massachusetts, it wasn't the Senate. It was something called the Privy Council, a council of advisors uh, to the to the executive. But the given that the Senate was in the, of the proposed Constitution was was they had in mind a more elite body uh, of statesmen. Uh, it made sense uh, to draw an analogy between the Privy Council. And the Senate. Now, as they made the suggestion in 1787, this was in the immediate aftermath, just seven years after Massachusetts had reformed its own constitution and really had put the Privy Council at the center of uh, the governance alongside the executive, especially with respect to record keeping and appointments and so on. And so this was an important innovation in Massachusetts. When Gorham proposed it, it was significant. Now, the problem is in Madison's notes for the constitution, they, don't, they say that Gorham made this suggestion based on the example in Massachusetts, but nobody explained what exactly the Massachusetts program was, or at least why they had arrived on this and how it had operated in Massachusetts. So the origin of my paper back in 2005, 2006, since I was in Massachusetts at the time, was to go back and look at the records of the Privy Council and see how, if at all, it handled these confirmation votes. And that ended up being the focus of my paper in terms of whether or not there was an obligation of the Senate to vote or not. But just one last thing, I don't mean to filibuster, but after Gorham's proposal came up, James Madison had an interesting counterproposal. He suggested that instead of advice and consent, uh, the, the, the better approach might be for the president to make a nomination and for that nomination to go into effect if the Senate didn't veto the, uh, the president's nomination. Uh, he, uh, there were a couple of iterations of this proposal, and he'd never specified the, the time frame for the Senate to muster a vote. Um, I think, if I recall correctly, he might have originally proposed uh, a majority vote or maybe a supermajority vote, and then that changed. But the point is that Madison's alternative to advice and consent was for the president to get his nomination unless the Senate affirmatively acted to reject that nomination, which I think is interesting and in some ways telling for the modern approach. But that approach failed, and ultimately, the, as we know, the Constitution went with the nomination and then advice and consent model. Fascinating. Thank you so much for that great introduction. We the People listeners, you can check out Adam's paper in the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy. And it's so interesting to learn that the Massachusetts model was the basis for Gorham's proposal. Uh, you can also go online at treasures.constitutioncenter.org, where we have the evolving first 
drafts of the text of the Constitution, and you can see, as Adam said, that James Wilson originally proposed that the Senate should uh, have the power to appoint, uh, and as late as the Committee of Detail report, the Senate, too, has both treaty-making power and the power to appoint Supreme Court justices, so it was something of a late-breaking addition of the president. Uh, Laurie, what can you add to the original understanding of the appointment process and how the framers expected that the president and the Senate would interact? Sure. I think Adam's history is really interesting because what it shows is that in all of these different variations, the different things that were considered and rejected and then ultimately adopted um, by, by the, the founders, in all of these articulations of the options, we see a consistent desire to have a, um, a, a type of indirect accountability to the elected branches of government baked into that cake. So all of these visions foresaw a system in which the process would, in one sense, be inherently political because it would be managed and um, undertaken by political elected officials. And that's, that's fascinating in a couple of ways, um, um, be, because the founders famously were writing in a a moment in time in which they believed they had designed a uh, a system of government that would be immune from the the negative consequences and negative effects of the development of political parties they thought they were going to be able to avoid that particular type of factionalism and were designing a constitution to to battle different types of factions um, and of course that very very quickly broke down um, and we almost immediately after the the um, enactment of the constitution and the washington administration um, we very quickly had what became kind of traditional political parties as we know them develop. Um, so so the, the, the effect of that on the Supreme Court appointments process um, was that elected officials from a very, very early point in our history, they have always known that who sits on the court matters. And they've always approached the appointments process accordingly. Um, you know, President Washington had one of his nominees rejected. So did James Madison. Um, when Jefferson finally seized power away from the Federalists as our third president, he, he, there are these letters he was writing just with, with glee to his friends about how they'd be able to grab back control of the judiciary. And of course, the Federalists themselves, President Adams, before he tried to, before he left office, enacted the Midnight Judges Act, which the whole purpose of was to stack the Federalists judiciary um, with uh, like-minded partisans to, of the outgoing administration. So the, 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 the political um, awareness that who sits on the court matters is one of the things that hasn't changed in our process. That's been there from the very beginning. Very interesting. Uh, thanks so much for that context and for reminding us that the framers didn't anticipate the rise of political parties and that transformed the confirmation process from the beginning. Do 
Dear We The People listeners, I am so gratified by your emails and the fact that We The People matters so much to you and you are part of the Constitution Center's family of lifelong learners about the Constitution. To express thanks and also to engage you more, I, and I would be so thrilled if you would join the Constitution Center at any level, of course, but if you can join at $250 or more, which I know is a substantial commitment. I would be honored to send you a signed copy of my new book about William Howard Taft, our most judicial president and presidential chief justice. But even more importantly than uh, any particular amount is your joining the center to show your engagement with us, whether it's a dollar or five dollars or more. Your support is necessary to make this podcast possible and to make possible everything we do. Adam, let's jump into the history that Lori has teed up. As she suggests, the outgoing Federalists reduced the size of the Supreme Court to deny the incoming Republicans led by Jefferson the ability to make Supreme Court appointments. So tell us about some of the most hotly contested early Supreme Court nominations in the Washington, uh, Madison, or other administrations and how things played out. Well, and let me just amplify a point that she made at the end about the, the nature of judges and the importance of their of, of the type of people being selected. That was another, that was in the design of advice and consent as Hamilton later defended the Federalist. He stressed that the advice and consent model, not just for judges, but for all appointments, it was intended to ensure that, that men of, of, and women of, of high character um, would make it through, that the appointment process wouldn't just be sort of a, a, crony, a crony process of a president picking his or her friends, uh, but rather the Senate was there to be a check on that impulse. And I think it's also reflected in Federalist 78, uh, the famous Federalist paper on on the judiciary. That's where Hamilton talks about the courts being the least dangerous branch, where he talks about courts having neither force nor will but merely judgment. But later in that paper, a part that gets much less attention, he talks about the structure of the judiciary, their life tenure, and so on, being necessary to ensure that the best kind of lawyers become judges, ones that are learned in the law, ones that consider themselves bound down by the voluminous codes of laws and precedents, and so on. You had Hamilton in that aspect writing about the judiciary and writing about the confirmation, the appointment process, and re- reminding us that it's not just to allow anybody in to become a judge, but rather to maximize the chance that we'll get the best kind of judges. And he and he had, uh, he at least he had a certain kind of judge in mind then, to especially avoiding, like I said, the crony picks and, and so on. So I think that's important. Now, Jefferson's rise to the presidency gave the Republicans the first opportunity to try to relitigate the Federalist uh, judiciary, first in terms of the structure of the court, um, then after that, in terms of the sitting justices, famously they tried to remove Justice Samuel Chase through impeachment proceedings. Um, um, I have to admit, um, off the top of my head, I'm, I'm forgetting which uh, nominations were sunk in the 19th century. Um, I think, as, as we've already discussed, it's true that a number of them did fail, um, both before and after the, the Civil War. Um, but I'm not sure um, how much insight I can lend on specifically which ones were sunk or why. Um, well, let's find out from uh, Lori, who's written this great uh, book on the, on the history. And, and Lori, t- you, know, t- you can tell us about which ones yeah. were sunk and, and, and why and, and, and what uh, message we should take from this effort to reduce the size of the court by Jefferson and, and also uh, similar struggles around the Civil War. 
Yeah, so, so there was actually a higher rejection rate in the first about 150 years of the country than there has been since then um, of, of presidential um, uh, appointments or nominations that were affirmatively rejected by the Senate. Um, it, it was about 20% um, in, our, in our first kind of century. And since then, overall, we're at about 10% of of actual rejections where the Senate held a vote and voted the nominee down. And that's, it's about 12 of about 114 who have sat on the, the Supreme Court. So that's, that's not a small number. It's a, a, a somewhat surprising number of presidential nominations have been affirmatively rejected by the Senate. There's also another group of nominations that are either withdrawn or not acted on because uh, it became clear that they weren't going to be confirmed. Um, if you add those in, the number's about 25% of presidential nominations that were, um, were, were not advanced or were affirmatively rejected by the Senate. And who they are, you know, it's, it's quite a cross-section of, of issues, controversies, problems. Um, Washington, the nominee that Washington had rejected um, uh, was uh, Rutledge, and he was uh, shot down. He was re- affirmatively rejected on a, uh, a vote by the Senate um, because of his opposition to the Jay Treaty. He was seen as much to it, there, there was a controversy about the Jay, Jay Treaty, which ended the which was our treaty with Britain at the end of the war, um, and there were geopolitics involved with it um, in the battles between Britain and France, um, and Rutledge was just seen as way too hostile to the goal of the Jay Treaty and Britain, um, and he was struck down by the Senate, um, rejected by the Senate on that ground. Um, President Jackson, um, he had to wait for the Senate to flip. He waited until a, a midterm election passed in order to get his chief justice confirmed. Um, president Tyler was a very, very weak president. He became president only, he, he, he was vice president and became president only when President Harrison died. Um, he had just a terrible time and I think ultimately had maybe five open nominations and only managed to get one through the Senate. Um, and then, of course, in more recent times, um, just in terms of nominations that were unsuccessful, um, Harriet Myers, one of uh, the second President Bush nominees, was sank um, or withdrawn, uh, probably because, mainly because of opposition um, within her own party um, to that nomination. And uh, just a smidge before that, we had uh, the, the famous uh, second Justice Harlan, who was appointed by Eisenhower. He didn't get out of committee the first time around. He was perceived as too liberal and had to sit in committee for an election cycle to pass. So there's, there's been a host of them. Absolutely fascinating. Um, Adam, you know, another beat on the 19th century history, you in arguing that the founding debates don't provide any indication of an expectation that the Senate would be required to vote on nominees. Uh, note that presidents have made 160 nominations for the Supreme Court. The Senate confirmed only 124 of them, and of the 36 failed nominations, the vast majority of them, 25, received no up or down vote. Sticking with the 19th century uh, for another beat or so, just because there's so much to mine there, what, what should we make of the fact that nominees seem to be rejected on the basis of pure political disagreement, like the uh, Rutledge's opposition to the Jay Treaty didn't get votes and, and things seem pretty partisan. Yeah, and I, I think it's, we should take care to stress that of that number, that the nominations that didn't receive uh, a vote, 
some of them uh, did end up getting renominated. I and mean, we're talking about nominations, not nominees. And as, as was just mentioned, uh, you know, Justice Harlan, for example, eventually got confirmed. Um, it's an v- extremely small number that just disappeared altogether without a vote. Um, but there was, there, were more, there was more than one. Um, from the very beginning, as I said earlier, the idea w- was that the Senate was there to ensure that the, that the nominees were qualified. Um, that was the idea, but I don't want to put two rose-colored glasses on this. The senators vote or don't vote for a variety of reasons, and the Senate's a political body. Um, and so even though the judicial appointment process was shielded from you know, direct appointment by the people themselves or by their nearest representatives, right? like so much of, of our structural constitution, it was intended to create a process that would turn passion into reason, the fact is that politics inheres in everything that the Senate does. And so I think it would be wrong to suggest that the senators weren't expected to vote with an eye to politics. And I think it's hard, looking at the record, to not say that they, they didn't, in some cases, or all cases, vote with an eye to politics. That side of things never troubled me that much. I always thought it was a political body performing a political function. Um uh, Laurie, are there other major 19th century battles to, to note, especially around the size of the court around the time of the Civil War? Um, the Civil War was not a... Um, the, the Supreme Court was on the losing side of the Civil War, and that created a lot of tension around appointments, um, both immediately before and immediately after um, th- that, that conflict. And... Um, it was not a. It was obviously a, a terrible time for the country and a, a terrible time for the court. Uh, and um, let's uh, turn to the question of hearings. Uh, it wasn't until the late nineteenth century that there was any uh, private hearing held at all uh, for a nominee who was subsequently rejected, uh, and the first public hearing was that of Louis Brandeis, a great hero of the We the People podcast of mine, who didn't appear uh, in person following the custom that nominees not appear in person. The first nominee to appear in person was Felix Frankfurter in 1939, who faced uh, allegations of disloyalty over his civil libertarian sympathies. So, so Adam, tell us, during this raucous 19th century in which all these nominees were being rejected, uh, was it just done behind closed doors without hearings? And, And how did the tradition of hearings evolve? Well, that's right. This, none of this was public, uh, or at least none, none of the proceedings were in public until we get into the 20th century. Everything else back then was done through votes or through the lack of vote. As you you mentioned that it was Justice Brandeis who caused the first public hearing, uh, and of course it was done, as many many would say, for the wrong reason, right? The, the concerns about Justice Brandeis were being inflamed uh, by his critics, either because of his progressive politics uh, his, his work as a progressive reformer, or because of outright anti-Semitism towards the nominee. And it was that impulse that turned this from a behind-the-scenes political process into a, a public political process. And then, of course, 
Frankfurter questions about his disloyal questions about his loyalty, we have the same thing happening. Now today, there's other complaints, obviously, about the confirmation process, and and uh, maybe we'll get to that later. But I do think it, it's interesting that although the process became more public in the 20th century, and I think that's a good development, it didn't happen necessarily for the right reasons. It probably happened for the wrong reasons. Laurie, what more can you tell us about uh, the early controversies, and in particular about the uh, confirmation hearings for Felix Frankfurter? Yeah, um, I, to, to pick up on a point that Adam just made about the, the process becoming more public, um, one of the, uh, well, Felix Frankfurter was the first nominee to, to appear before the committee in an open session and take unrestricted questions. Prior nominees had either not appeared themselves or they had appeared in private session or they had appeared to only answer very particular questions about a well-defined narrow topic that the Senate had very precise questions about. So Felix Frankfurter in 1939 was the, the, the first person who came and openly testified. Um, and there really were two reasons that that, that choice was made. Um, the first was unique or specific to the Frankfurter confirmation. He The first day of hearings opened, the senators were doing their thing, um, uh, professor at the time, Frankfurter was not there, um, and he was just getting beaten up on the Senate floor. The, the senators um, were, were calling him a communist. They were calling him disloyal to America. Felix Frankfurter came to America as an immigrant when he was seven or eight years old. He didn't speak English. He was, of course, Jewish, so the anti-Semitism was also in play here as it was for Brandeis. Um, and he was just getting shredded um, on the floor of the Senate. And the president's people called and said, you have got to go in there and defend yourself. You've got to go in and um, confirm to the senators and say out loud in public that you are loyal to America and 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 that you you will you know duly interpret and, and apply the Constitution of the United States. So he did. He went in and he sat down and he took these really quite hostile questions um, and ended up basically affirming his Americanness and saying yes, this is who I am and I'm loyal to this country and I, I will I will do my duty um, as the Supreme Court Justice. So, so that was the first reason um, that was specific to the hearings. The second reason, though, and this this gets to Adam's point about the um, the the process becoming more public as democratic accountability grew um, in a variety of ways. Um, and that second reason is this: that the hearing before Frank's Frankfurter was Hugo Black's, um, and Hugo Black, as you may remember, was um, a, a, had been a sitting senator. And he was confirmed um, without, he was confirmed very, very quickly and voted on and approved by the Senate very, very quickly. Um, and without public disclosure of a thing that the senators knew, which was that he apparently was a, a continuing member. He had, he had not declined or, or refused a lifelong membership in the Ku Klux Klan. That news came out after Hit the Senate approved his appointment to the court, and it was incredibly controversial. The, the um, journalist who broke the story actually won a Pulitzer for it. Um, and the senators and the chair of the Judiciary Committee at the time 
promised publicly and in response to this criticism that going forward they would conduct a more open process so the people could be better informed about the nominees that, that were being considered. If I could just uh, appreciatively thank Lori for noting the Black nomination and encourage our listeners, go onto YouTube and check out the movie that Black made after the story was broken that he joined the Klan. He went on to national television and he said, I did join the Klan. I never rejoined. That is the last I have to say on the matter. And everyone said, bravo, you've done it, Justice Black. You've completely laid all our doubts aside. And they allowed him to continue to serve. It was a much more deferential time. Adam, what do you make of the, the, the Black nomination? And now we're beginning to move up to a world where the confirmation process is being transformed by the media, by public scrutiny. And how did it become more polarized as a result? I'm so glad we, d- we discussed the black nomination. What a, what a, I mean, it was a, an, an awful moment uh, politically. And to use the, the famous line uh, from, from Justice Brandeis, you know, sunshine being the best disinfectant, right? For all of our complaints about the nomination or the, the confirmation hearings or, or everything in the last you know several decades, I think it's important to remember that bringing this process out into the public changed not just the composition of the the nominate the nominees or the ways that the, the sorts of people that were nominated, it also in the long run had a profound impact on the types of questions that senators would ask. I mean, who knows what senators have in their own minds as they're voting for or against the nominee, but at least in the process of of the the, the confirmation hearing in public, um, bringing the this process out in public from Brandeis through Black uh, onto Frankfurter would in the long run have a profound impact on the, the, the conduct of the senators themselves. Um, and I think that's a good thing. Again, something that happened for originally for bad reasons, uh, ultimately uh, pro- pro- proved to be very good in the long run for this. Uh, f- fascinating. So um, we're beginning to have public hearings, and the, first there's radio, and then, Laurie, tell us when were the first televised hearings, and tell, we haven't gotten up to 1987 to Bork yet, but tell us about the hearings between Black and Bork. Some were controversial, others were not. They seemed to vote more on qualifications than on judicial philosophy. How would you describe those hearings? Well, I, I mean, I think it's always the, 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 the nominations by the president and the votes by the Senate have always been a mix of, of qualifications, um, constitutional consequences, considerations, and, and, and a, a, a more raw form of politics. All of those things have been in the mix. And you see that, Adam mentioned kind of the, the, the types of questions that the senators ask. Um, and what you see is this, int- when, when you read the transcripts over time from 1939 forward, what you see is this interesting combination of, of similarity and difference, right? As you read through these, the, the commonality is the senators have always been asking nominees about issues that um, are relevant to their constituents in a given moment in time. So the, the early hearings, they, they, they weren't discourses on interpretive theory, right? I mean, they, they were always asking about constitutional consequences and the, how the, what, what different constitutional um, choices would mean for the important issues of the day. That's not new. Um, what you see is that those issues themselves change 
it went from being the threat of international communism, which, you know, as we've talked about, was very present in the Frankfurter hearing. It was also very present in William Brennan's hearing. Joe McCarthy, kind of at the end of his career, was allowed as a matter of senatorial courtesy to come and question William Brennan, who had actually been sitting in a recess appointment um, for a while, so he really didn't answer very many questions, but McCarthy was just going at him about the threat of international communism and whether or not the First Amendment um, offered protections to, to American communists. Um, and then we go into, we, we see those type of concerns kind of roll into the emerging civil rights movement where you see more questions about um, equality, racial equality, gender equality, um, sexual orientation rights. You see those issues start to come out more. Um, so, so what has always been the same is that the senators talk the language of, they, 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 they talk about the Constitution in the language of contemporary politics and what matters to their people and their constituents in that moment in time, but what those issues are themselves change. It's really, it's fascinating to see that play forward. Absolutely fascinating. Um, Adam, tell us more about the pre-Bork hearings. There was the famous rejection of Abe Fortas for financial scandals, and even before that, uh, Senator Strom Thurmond famously said to Fortas, Escobedo, I want that name to ring in your ears. He was referring to the defendant allegedly freed by the uh, soft-on-crime Warren Court. So the Supreme Court is becoming a political football and the nominees are beginning to feel that. And yet we still have a tradition of uh, senators from one party voting for nominees from the other. So what can you tell us about right. th those hearings? And, and using Bork as the reference point, I think, is, is important for a reason that might not be obvious. Um, until the Bork hearing or and with Scalia before that, you didn't have sort of the, 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 the originalist methodology being so prominent you didn't have any particular interpretive methodology being so prominent. You couldn't even really talk in terms of a living constitution since talk about a living constitution is usually you know, done in, in contrast to another methodology like originalism. So until that took the stage in the 80s, you didn't have the same basis for asking questions about judicial decision making. And so you did have broader questions about policy and precedent. Now, uh, Chief uh, Justice Rehnquist, when he was nominated to be Chief Justice, uh, his his hearings were inflamed by the questions over his role as a clerk uh, in, in Brown v. Board, a clerk for Justice Robert Jackson uh, during uh, Brown v. Board of Education or, or, or Rehnquist's advice uh, to Jackson on Brown v. Board and, and the memo that Jackson had being cr uh, critical of the idea that the Constitution prohibited segregated schools. So that was the sort of thing that inflamed Rehnquist. Uh, before that, you had just much looser questions about uh, constitutional precedents. Again, as Lori said, with reference to the, the, uh, the political uh, hot-button topics of the day. And so Bork becomes a, a, a turning point, not just because of what we now think of, uh, of the nomination being famous for all the controversy around Bork, but also because before that you didn't have this, this touchstone of, of interpretive methodology to become itself a centerpiece of the questions. That is a fascinating point. And at a debate at the Cato Institute recently, uh, I learned from Judge Doug Ginsburg uh, that really it wasn't until the 80s and Ed Meese's speech about originalism that that 
put was put on the table as you suggested as a methodology. And now I'll just reveal a, a Zelig-like moment I had as a young kid uh, before I joined the Constitution Center and lost all political opinions whatsoever. I was a summer intern for uh, Senator Joe Biden, of all people, during the Bork hearings, uh, talk about being a fly on the wall, and had a very minor footnote role in helping do some research for the speech that Biden gave, asserting the Senate's right to consider the judicial philosophy of nominees, which until that point, as you say, Adam, had been a contested point, and it was an important uh, milestone. So, Laurie, how important was that uh, speech of, of of Senator Biden and, and how transformative was the Senate's decision to start considering judicial philosophy post-Bork? Today we often talk about the Bork hearing as if it was kind of the moment that changed everything. Um, but it's not really clear that that's true. Um, of course, uh, there, there, as we've talked about, there were lots of rejected nominees before Bork. Um, and I think the the contestedness, the hostility of the, the, the hearings and the process is really more cyclical than linear. There have always been hotly contested hearings, and there's always been periods when the, the process has, smoothed, has gone more smoothly. And I think what we see is that when you have um, a deeply divided partisan moment um, politically in the country as a whole, and or you have a, a, a seat like Bork's seat, which of course became the Kennedy seat, which is now again the seat that's open right now. Um, when when you have a seat that is going to change the um, the composition of the court in ways that people perceive as affecting outcomes, those hearings are going to be much more controversial. So it's more of an ebb and a flow than a a, a march toward hostility over time. That is a very uh, provocative and interesting point. Um, Adam, Laurie suggests that Bork was not a transformation, uh, but and it really had more to do with the consequences of the seat than anything that changed about the process. And indeed, Judges Ginsburg and Breyer were confirmed with broad bipartisan majorities and so forth. So do you agree or disagree with Laurie that it's more important which particular seat is being considered rather than a transformation in the post-Bork process? Well, yeah, I, th- I think Lori's right for both both reasons that she identified, that so much turns both on the specific seat that's being filled um, and on the, the broader p- politics of the day. All these nominations happen in the context of their political moment. So when we think of Bork, uh, or when people speak of Bork's nomination as being the start of something, uh, a modern era maybe, that's true only insofar as we're talking about a, very, a much more limited window of time. Over the arc of constitutional history, there's been so many controversial nominees, many of them rejected. Um, Bork isn't remarkable in, in that sense. But I do think that Bork's nomination was more hotly contested and contested in different terms than, well, definitely Scalia before him, even more so than, 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 than Rehnquist before him. Um, and that may have ushered in what we now think of as a, as a modern moment. But as, as Laurie says, it wasn't itself in the long run of things a singular rejection. Uh, very interesting area of agreement and interesting insight. Uh, Laurie, nevertheless, we seem now to be at a point where you can't get a nominee confirmed to the Supreme Court unless you hold both the White House and the Senate, and nominees will not get any votes at all from uh, the opposite uh, party uh, for both the uh, seat that went to Justice Gorsuch and, and, and the Kavanaugh seat as well, or at least very, very few votes. 
Is that historically unprecedented or not? No, it's not historically unprecedented. Um, it's it's we we've had those periods of time in the past where nom- or presidents have held back nominations. They have moderated their nominations to accommodate a a Senate. Um, held by the opposition party. Um, so I think what we see is that there, there are the, these, these confirmations are very embedded in their moments in time. And right now we're in a moment of, in time where the court is um, seen as a prize to, to be fought for and won. Um, and that has, in a moment of intense partisan disagreement in the country as a whole, that's led to a situation where senators, or, or I'm sorry, presidents, they, they, presidents don't have a lot of incentives to, to nominate consensus candidates right now because of the way that the, the, the greater political environment is functioning or dysfunctioning in the country. And I think this too will pass. Uh, wow, wonderful moment of optimism on this very optimistic <laughs> <laughs> podcast. Adam, well, I guess I'll just ask whether you share uh, Lori's optimism that this too shall pass, or do you believe that there are certain structural changes in the Senate, like the elimination of the filibuster for judicial nominations, that make any hope of reconstructing bipartisan comedy elusive? Yeah, well, I, I hate to engage in fierce agreement on a podcast, <laughs> no, but I do want to. I do want to start with a, with a, another great point that Laurie makes. That in all of when we focus on the Senate, we don't always keep our eye on the ways in which a president might preemptively calibrate his own nominate choice of nominee to to maximize a chance of of or at least to to ensure a chance of confirmation. The namesake of of the institution where I work, President Hoover. Uh, famously nominated uh, Judge Cardozo to the Supreme Court late in his own time on the Supreme Court, a nomination that was recognized at the time as one that was less about ideological alignment between the president and the nominee, and rather uh, the president picking a strong nominee uh, who he thought would secure the confirmation of the advice and consent of the Senate um, in, a, in a politically heated year. And so it is important to keep an eye, to keep in mind the fact that a president's own actions might be behind the scenes shaped by the political environment. But of course, then in turn, the political environment does shape everything else. And I think you're right to ask whether the structural changes within the Senate um, have changed it. I mean, this, the nature of of who's being elected to the senators has mattered immensely as the political parties in this time have become more sorted, going back to the 1970s, more ideologically sorted. That's going to have an impact on it. Senators' willingness to threaten or then make changes to Senate procedure obviously has been important and it's had an iterative effect. There weren't, uh, there were, there were, there, there were very few, if any, filibusters of Supreme Court nominees, as I understand it, Lori might know better. Uh, but there were there were no outright filibusters in, in terms of cloture votes you know, until much more recently. And then, as that became a possible tool, one that was threatened by various senators, there was the the counter response of, well, well, then we'll change the rules to end filibusters, and so on. We have this iterative effect. But just to focus briefly on on, I thought it's an interesting choice of words by Lori. She said the courts um, come to be seen as a prize. Um, the spoils for the victor of a presidential election, something that the president owes his base. Uh, that's true, 
Um, I think it's also true that the court's seen as a prize in part because the court's made itself a prize. And I think we have to keep in mind that the changing politics of Supreme Court nominations has also been a function of the work of the Supreme Court, or at least a function of how the work of the Supreme Court is seen by the public. And this is a point that Justice Scalia made so eloquently in his dissent, uh, at the end of his dissent in Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 92. But at the very end of that opinion, there's this remarkable passage I'd urge your, your listeners to take a look at. This is in the immediate aftermath of the, the Thomas hearings. Uh, and you have justices concerned about the, the political atmosphere surrounding the court and the protests and so on. And Justice Scalia goes out of his way in this dissent to say that those who are concerned the Supreme Court nominations are becoming too hotly contested, too politically venomous, must keep in mind that they will remain that way so long as the court makes value judgments on behalf of the country and their constitutional decisions reflect that. Now, you, we can, we, it's for another time to debate whether Justice Scalia was right in his diagnosis about what the court was doing, but I think it is fair to say that Justice Scalia was right that the more that the court is seen by the public as a political adjudicator, the more that the people will demand that their elected officials uh, make the confirmation process more political. As Scalia said, if the people think that the court is deciding things based on value judgments, well, the people are perfectly capable of making value judgments of their own, and they'll see to that through the confirmation process. And so that, I think, is the last ingredient, or one of the last ingredients to keep in mind, that as either the court's work or the public's perception of the court's work changed in recent decades. Um, that, in turn, I think, is a major ingredient in, in the, the current composition of the confirmation process. Thank you so much for calling. I can't resist uh, taking the invitation. Uh, you called to mind Justice Scalia's uh, vivid, searing dissent in the Casey case. Listeners can, of course, uh, check it out. And he calls to mind the portrait of Roger Taney, Chief Justice Taney, who wrote the Dred Scott decision hanging in the Harvard Law School library. And Scalia says he sits facing the viewer and staring straight out. There seemed to be on his face and in his deep-set eyes an expression of profound sadness and disillusionment. Perhaps he always looked that way, even when dwelling on the happiest of thoughts. But those who know how the luster of his great chief justiceship came to be eclipsed by Dred Scott cannot help believing that he had that case. It's soon to be played out consequences for the nation burning on his mind. And it's also relevant, Adam, because uh, by some measures, we are more polarized today than at any time since the Civil War. In the 1960s, uh, there was a... Uh, a 50% overlap between the most uh, liberal Republicans and the most conservative Democrats in the Senate today. There is no overlap. So you're suggesting that the polarization of the country may be playing out in the Senate. So that leads me to ask you, Laurie, why do you remain optimistic, given the extraordinary <laughs> polarization of the country and the Senate, that we can ever put the bipartisan genie back in the bottle? Well, I'll tell you why I'm optimistic. Why I'm somewhat optimistic, um, and and then I want to circle back to a point that Adam just made. I'm somewhat optimistic because remember, Bork led to Kennedy, right? <laughs> when when we talk about Bork as the 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 trigger for a new process, the the thing that happened immediately after Bork was rejected was Kennedy Kennedy, a consensus nominee, a a a, a, a who who became a quite um, idiosyncratic justice. Um, was chosen as the the new nominee for that seat by President Reagan, and he was confirmed by a um, 
a, a, a Senate held by the Democrats um, with close to or a unanimous vote. So, so we are capable of learning things, and we are capable of cycling through these processes, even though they certainly um, extract costs as we do it, and even though um, I think there, there undoubtedly are better processes that we could, we could get to and perhaps even agree on um, at, at some point in our future. So, so that's the source of, of let's call it tempered optimism. Um, even Bork led to a different type of process in that immediate aftermath. Um, the, the thing I wanted to circle back to that, that Adam mentioned when, when talking about the, the public's perception of the court as being much more embroiled in, in more issues. Um, I, it's a really fascinating point, um, and I think it's worth teasing out a couple of different um, phenomena that that are contributing to that. Um, and and the, the, the words that Adam said that struck me were the as seen by the public. Because of course the Senate or the, I'm sorry, the court has always been right in the middle of the most hotly contested political issues of the day. Um, it was true uh, it, it it was true uh, President Grant, for example. Um, vowed to stack the court with um, justices who would overturn the, the, the then recent legal tender cases. Um, FDR obviously wanted to stack the court to um, ensure that the, the, the justices would stop striking down his New Deal legislation. Um, the example used by Scalia, Dred Scott, um, of course, that case in the, in the you know, 1800s before the Civil War, um, it, they thought they were solving the problem, right? <laughs> so the justices were always right in the thick of this. There is simply nothing new about the court taking on the most hotly contested cases of the day. What has changed is that the, the, the range of um, issues and the range of people who are coming and claiming kind of a, a, a piece of the constitutional pie has expanded to a broader um, a, a wider con array of constituencies with a wider array of concerns. And kind of hand in hand with the democratization of the process overall, um, that's meant that the controversies are no longer disputes be among elites behind closed doors. They're, they're right here, they involve all of us, and we all see them. Very uh, important point. Um, so, Adam, given the factors we've been discussing, in particular this last point Laurie makes about the democratization of the confirmation process and the breadth of constituents that are involved, what's the optimistic scenario? In the next 50 years, sketch out uh, a confirmation process you could imagine where a nominee nominated by a Democratic Republic or a president gets Republican votes or vice versa. <laughs> That's uh, imponderable. Um, I, 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 well, first of all, I never said that I was as optimistic as she is. Although <laughs> you I said I you're am sort of optimistic. <laughs> I, I, I am sort of optimistic. I, I think, if first of all, if a trend can't continue forever, it won't. Um, right now, the trend line is for these things to become ever more hotly contested. Um, and there is, a, there is at some point, I, there has to be a breaking point in all this. I don't know what it is. I'm sure it will get worse before it gets much better. I do think that one of the things we need to keep in mind, again, keeping in mind that the confirmation process tracks the structural questions that surround it, the other the structural constitutional questions around it, 
you have this parallel debate about uh, term limits for justices. Um, I don't see that happening in the near future, but I wouldn't say that it won't happen in the long run as justices live longer and longer if there is a movement to reform the court and would require constitutional amendment to um, to shorten uh, or to, to limit the tenure of a justice. That might help diffuse things, um, but that's a, that's a, a, a long-range uh, thought. I would say that one of the reasons why I'm optimistic or one of the, opt- one of the more optimistic aspects of the current situation that I want to remind us of is that for as bad and poisonous as the process now seems and often is, um, and I do think that given the political environment we're in right now, I think the Kavanaugh hearing, although it's rather quiet as he does his Senate visits, I think it's going to be astonishingly heated and poisonous as we get through September. Um, I think it's important to, to, to shine a light on the good things that happen right now. Um, and I like to remind people that at the confirmation hearing, uh, the senators are going to ask questions about the court and the Constitution, about precedents. They're even going to ask sort of metaphysical questions about the nature of precedent itself. And so in the midst of all the bad things we're hap- that are happening, we actually do see great things happening. We're a moment where the country as a whole and the senators and the nominee pause to reflect upon and debate and ask questions about these first principles issues. And as we discussed earlier, in many respects, what we have now, or in that respect, what we have right now is a great improvement upon the behind the scenes process that we had a century ago, where senators were free to vote for or against the nomination, not just for the best of reasons, but for the absolute worst of reasons. And so even if what we have right now continues to involve a lot of, of, of personal attacks from either direction, a lot of uh, invective, a lot of political heat, at the same time, we see with each passing nomination ever more sophisticated questions about precedent, about methodology, about the work of the court. And in that respect, even as things get better, they also get worse, or sorry, even as things get worse in the most obvious respects, they also get much better from nomination to nomination in subtle respects. Wonderful note of optimism. And you are you persuasively argue that uh, the post-Bork hearings have indeed illuminated the judicial philosophy of the nominees for those who are paying attention. And I want listeners, as the Kavanaugh hearings uh, begin, to pay close attention to the hearings and to learn about the judicial philosophy of the nominee from the questions, cutting through the political noise and always focusing on questions of constitutional methodology and interpretation. Uh, Lori, the last word is to you in this very rich uh, and illuminating historical conversation. What notes for optimism do you see both in the current democratized process and the process over the coming decades. Yeah, well, I, I'll, I'll um, borrow a quote from uh, Professor Naudine uh, Heather Gerken talking about um, uh, a, a different type of election law. She, she, she coined the term that one of the issues that we frequently face when um, trying to figure out how to do things better is the, the here-to-there problem. There can be agreement, perhaps, on something like um, 18-year term limits, whether required or voluntary on the part of the justices. There can be agreement about better processes um, and, and better ways of doing things. The problem is getting from where we are to where we want to be, the here-to-there problem. Um, and with the current confirmations process, the here-to-there problem manifests as neither side 
feels like it can unilaterally disarm. Um, so, so, so we have kind of these no holds barred fights, and I, I, like as I said earlier, I think that is cyclical. I think it's um, a lot of things happening at this particular moment in time um, with this particular seat on this particular court. So it's not an inevitable trajectory toward more and more hostility. But I think what we're going to see, and here's my 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 optimist, my optimistic. Um, uh, uh, prediction. I think what we're going to see in the aftermath of this current fight may be some groping toward um, agreements about the role of the court, the possibility that term limits might be something we want to move toward to take some of the heat off the confirmation process, regardless of the, you know, the, the, the age of the justices and whether they're living longer or not. The current process just puts so much pressure on the politics of retirement, the politics of the nominations, and uh, taking some of that pressure out of the system, I think would generate a better process and and a more palatable court. Thank you so much, Lori Rand and Adam White, for a illuminating, deep conversation. You have provided us with historical context. You have taught us that our current vexations are not unprecedented, and you have given us grounds for modified rapture, if not modified optimism, that uh, things might improve in the future. Lori, Adam, thank you so much for joining. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jeff. Today's show was engineered by Greg Sheckler and produced by Madison Poulter and Scott Bomboy. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich and the Constitutional Content Team of the National Constitution Center. Friends, dear We the People listeners, the Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We rely on the generosity, passion, and engagement of people across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional education and debate. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org forward slash membership to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jeffrey Rosen.